I'll invite you to stand with me as I read verses 6 through 18 of John 1, and then we will pray together. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let us pray together. Father, we begin this morning by lifting up our sister church, those people who make up Pinecrest Baptist Church in Portsmouth. As we recognize this morning, they gather together in sorrow with the loss of their pastor. We pray for not only them, but for the Hester family during this time. We recognize, God, that we as followers of Jesus do not mourn as those with no hope. And as even our own congregation in the last couple of weeks have lost uh, members of our church, We know, Father, that for those who are in Christ, when we step out of this world, we step into eternity with you. Thank you, God, for the hope of the gospel that we can know that we as believers have eternal life with Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you comfort that church, we pray, and that family, and we pray your blessings upon them, particularly today, as it will be a difficult day for them. Would you help us now, God, as we approach your word, because you are light, and that light illuminates our eyes and our minds and our hearts and our souls as we come to your word to learn from it today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Originally, this sermon series, this short little Advent series in John 1 was intended to be a three-week break in our longer series in Genesis Uh, But this will only be the second sermon, and it is going to conclude. Uh, Last week, if you were here, Mark Custolo, who is also with the uh, SBC of Virginia, preached in uh, our place. Uh, Originally, Pastor Michael was going to preach verses 6 through uh, 13, and then uh, as he was preparing to do that, uh, his wife's father passed away, and so they were uh, in West Virginia last week. And so I rearranged some things, and if you were here on Christmas Eve, you've already heard me talk about verses 6, 7, 8, and 15, the verses that talk to us 
us about not John who wrote the book of John, but John the Baptist who was the forerunner and messenger of the light. And so I'm not going to revisit those verses this morning for the sake of time, but if you haven't, uh, if you didn't join us here on Thursday evening or if you weren't with us online, I would encourage you to go back and to watch the live stream of that uh, Christmas Eve service. I thought we had a great, we had two of them. I thought we had great Christmas Eve services that day, uh, but I explained some of that text during that time. Uh, and if you really want the, the full picture of what is happening here in this prologue of John, I'd encourage you to listen to that. But for the sake of time this morning, we're going to pick up in verse nine. As we, in the first sermon here, in those first few verses of John, we looked at the nature of Jesus, that he is fully God and fully man, that he was with God in the beginning, but not only was he with God, he was God and that all things that were made were made through him and without him, nothing was made and that all life was created in him, is sustained in him, and that his light is the only light that shines in the darkness. Well, today we'll see that that light has come to earth and that some rejected the light and some received the light, and we'll see the benefits and the rewards of those who receive the light and the grace and truth that we find through the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who is the light of the world. This section here of John 1 begins with those who reject the light. Look with me in verses 9 and 10. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. John begins this section with a very clear statement that Jesus is the true light. He had already introduced him as the light that shines in the darkness in verse 5 and the, the kind of light that the darkness could not comprehend or overcome. The darkness could not conquer the light because he is the one true light. John eliminates the idea that there are multiple sources of spiritual light and what we need to do is just find our own source for spiritual light. He's very clear in saying that Jesus is the, not a true light, but the true light, singular, the only one that exists, the only light that conquers spiritual darkness, the only light, as we will see at the end, that reveals God to us is Jesus and this light gives light to everyone. Now, when we read that the true light gives light to everyone, we should not assume some type of universal or universalist theological position here in that because Jesus came as the light, now everyone who walks on the earth or ever has will be in the light because Jesus has come. That's not what John is saying. If, that would, if that's what John means in this verse, then he's going to contradict himself just in a, another couple of verses, and he would be in contradiction to the entire teachings of Scripture. So what does John mean when he says that the true light gives light to everyone? He means he is the only source of true light, and anyone who comes into that light does so through him, and that that light is intended to be proclaimed as an available to all of the world. So there, there, are, there are tensions that we should hold here. And here's, here's the tension that we should hold. On one end, we should hold the tension that there are going to be those, some, many, you may want to say most, 
who will not receive the light. They will be those like in Jesus's day who rejected the light. There are those today, maybe sitting in here watching with us online, that are going to hear the truth of the gospel and continue to walk in darkness. That was true in Jesus's day in the midst of his ministry, and it is true today. As we proclaim the gospel to people, we must recognize that not everyone who hears about the light will receive it as good news, but there will be those who do not. So that's one end of that tension. The other end is still, we are, as those who do walk in the light, those who have been born again in Christ, we have the responsibility, we bear the responsibility of proclaiming the light to everyone, to the world. Jesus later in his ministry would, would talk about that light like this. Like you don't light a lamp in your house and then put a basket over it, right? But you put a lamp in the middle of the room. You put it on a lampstand so it would light the entire room. And so we hold in tension this idea that, yes, we are going to proclaim the gospel to people who are not going to receive it. And yet, it is our responsibility as those who are in the light to proclaim the light to them. Just as they rejected him, many will reject us, and we need to be okay with that truth. John goes on to explain he was in the world, this world that he created, the world that was, he says in verse 10, made through him, yet the world did not know him. Creation was made by the creator, but creation did not recognize the creator when he came. Now, when we see world here, we should think very broad and general that the peoples of the world, that those who encountered Jesus, many of them rejected him. Many of them did not recognize who he was because they were still in darkness. You say, well, why were they in darkness? They were in darkness then for the same reason that people are in darkness now. There is animosity from the creation to the creator, not the other way around, right? But there's animosity from the crea creation, us, to the creator, God, because of our sin. Our sin has so blinded us to the truth of who God is and who Christ is that people are willing to reject the truth of Jesus and walk in darkness because it is all they know. And that's what John is describing to us here. Even though he made the world, the world did not know him. Later in his ministry in John chapter 15, Jesus describes this relationship and how he's rejected by the world. He says this, if the world hates you, he's talking to his disciples, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus concludes that teaching in verse 25 where he says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. See, Jesus goes further to describe this, this conflict between the creation and the creator and he describes it as hate. And he tells his disciples, they're going to hate you just as they hate me and they hate me because they don't know me and they hate me because it's fulfilling scripture. They have no real reason to do it, but they're going to do it anyway. There are going to be those in the world, many 
even most, who reject the truth of the gospel and are willing to continue to walk in darkness because it is all they know. And they will hate the gospel. They will hate the messenger. And they will hate the savior because they don't know better. Because they are still blind to the truth and walking in darkness. But then John narrows the view and he goes from a worldview down to the view of just his own. And when we see here in verse 11 that he came to his own, what John is describing is the Hebrew people. That people group that dwelled in Israel, the the Jewish people that Jesus was a part of, who up until this point in scripture have been the, the main actors in the story of redemption that they are the ones whom God is working through. For centuries, God has sent prophets and priests and kings to, to make way for the Lord. We looked at this on, on, uh, on Thursday night with, with the, the verses about John, that all of the Old Testament, this is what culminates in John, that all of the Old Testament is leading up to Jesus. So, It's one thing for the world to reject the good news of Jesus, but then you've got this small group of people who should have known. You get this small group of people who for centuries, people had been telling them that the Messiah was coming. It began with these small little hints and then became more and more clear that by the time Jesus comes, they should know. But verse 11 tells us that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That one group who above all else should have been watching, should have been waiting, should have known because God had been working in them for centuries, building up to this moment, still most of them completely missed who Jesus was. And of course, this is in the beginning of the gospel of John, but John is writing it in retrospect, right? He's looking back on it, these events already having taken place. And he tells us, here in the beginning of John 1, what is going to happen throughout his gospel narrative. And one of the primary subjects of the gospel of John is the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people. We see this in several places. One of them is John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus is talking to those who are rejecting him. And he says this, do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This one group of people that had every reason to expect the coming Messiah still missed it. And they had placed their hope on the fact that they wouldn't miss it. They had placed their hope on when he says Moses, he's not talking about Moses in a negative term. We're going to see Moses appear again here uh, in in the text of John. It's not that, that they're viewing Moses in a negative term at all. He's saying, if you really believed what Moses had said, then you would have expected my coming. If you really believe what Moses had said, you would know who I am, Jesus says there in John 5, 46, because Moses wrote about me, but you don't even really believe Moses because you don't believe me. So the world reject, rejected Jesus and even his own, those who should have known more than anyone else, most still rejected him. But there would be some who would receive him. 
Man, if we were to stop here at verse 11, it would seem like we would be on this very negative footing, right? That, that the world rejected him, the Jews rejected him. It seems like there's no one who saw Jesus for who he truly was. But John doesn't leave us there. He tells us that there are some who did receive the light. In verse 12, he writes, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now there's a lot here contained in just this one verse. First is this idea of receiving him. And that begs this question, how does one receive him? Do we receive Jesus by by acknowledging the, the historical person of Jesus? Do we receive Jesus by coming to church? Do we receive Jesus by receiving others? Did they receive Jesus in that day by being hospitable when Jesus was in town on his ministry? How do we receive Jesus? Well, John tells us, who believed in his name. That's how. How does one receive Jesus? By faith alone. And faith in what? Faith in what he says, what John writes, who believed in his name. This is faith in the person of Jesus. That's what name meant back then. Name didn't just mean some name that you would write on a name tag. Hello, my name is Jesus. It's not some magical word that we invoke when we're in trouble or when we're sick or when things need to be going wrong. It's not even some magical prayer that we can come down to the front of the church and say some some words that somebody tells us to say and all of a sudden everything in life is better. To believe in the name of Jesus is to have faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is to believe what John has already said to be true. That in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning that all things were created through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. You see, we can't believe in the name of Jesus if we don't understand the nature of Jesus. And he wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a guy trying to overthrow the political and religious establishment. He wasn't just a guy that loved the poor and hung out with sinners and healed the sick. He is God. And to miss that he is God made flesh is to miss Jesus entirely. That is what we have faith in. We have faith in that Jesus is who the Bible says he is and that he did what the Bible says that he did, dying in our place so that we might have life. Anything else is not faith. Anything else is just some kind of head knowledge or some kind of uh, spoken acknowledgement of some historic figure. What's being described here is much deeper than that. It's what we would call saving faith. It's not just recognizing that there was this man who lived named Jesus, but that that man was God and is still today God and died so that I might live. And then what happens to those who received him, who received him by believing in his name through faith alone, something incredible takes place. He gave them the right, John writes in verse 12, gave them the right to become children of God. Somebody, one of our young college students came to me after the first service and said, you said something in there, I just wanna clarify what you're saying because I, I get this all the time from people. You're saying that we're not all children of God, right? 
That if someone then has the right to become a child of God, then it is incorrect to say that we're all children of God. Because in the college that I go to, people always want to say, oh yeah, we're all God's children. It's not just in colleges. Every politician I think that's ever lived in America uses those, oh, we're all God's children. Listen to what the Bible says. No, we're not. Only those who have come to him in faith in Jesus Christ are children of God. Only those who have believed in his name has God given the right to become children of God. It is only those alone. John writes about this same idea in his letters to the churches. In 1 John, which is one of his letters to the churches, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. John makes just as clear of a definitive statement there in 1 John as he does in the Gospel of John. There are some who have been given the right to be called children of God, who are children of God, and it is those whom have come to him in faith. But notice, this is not something we do on our own, and John will explain that further in the prologue. But it's important to note here that those who believe are children of God because God has made them to be so. In John 1, 12, he gave the right. In 1 John 3, 1, he called them children of God. The act of making us children of God is not an act that we perform. We don't adopt ourselves into God's family. It is God who acts. It is God who gave. It is God who calls. It is God who adopts us, who come to him in faith in Jesus, into his family. Those who receive the light do so because the free gift of God so that no man can boast comes into their lives. None of this is earned by us. None of this is positional, something that we deserve. All of it, all of it is grace of God from the love of the Father to those whom he draws to himself so that they might be called children of God. Those who are in the light, this miraculous thing happens. We go from being enemies of God to being part of the family of God. Then he describes this further in verse 13, making sure we don't miss it. Who were born, right? All people were born, right? But who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John provides three stipulations here for us that we must understand. That for us to be born into the family of God It is not by, he uses three negatives and then one positive. And each of those three, each of those negatives are something that that people will often claim as being their right to be called a child of God, but that John refutes. The first is birthright. And that would have been one of the primary means by which uh, people in John's day and in John's culture would have claimed to be right with God. Because John, a Jew, writing in a Jewish context. And this is what they claimed, that because they were born a Hebrew, born into the people of God, that they were then a part of the people of God. 
And this is still true today. There are still many that believe that because they were born into a certain family, because they were born into a certain culture or a certain nation, that somehow that automatically makes them right with God. Listen, if you think you are in the kingdom of God or in the family of God because you were born into it, by flesh, because of your lineage, because mom and dad were Christians and grandmothers and granddads were Christians and so on and so forth. If that's what you are banking on, you are sorely mistaken, my friend. I don't care what someone in your heritage or lineage in your family tree has done for the Lord. And sometimes people will wanna appeal to that. They'll wanna appeal to, you know, my granddad was a pastor you know, my grandmother, she was a missionary. You know, mom and dad used to bring us. I was born into the church. No, 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 you weren't. You, you, were, you were born into a family of people that attended church. Hopefully you were born into a family of Christians who had professed faith in Jesus. But if you were relying on that birthright to somehow make you right with God, you're going to be sorely mistaken. And that's what he says. It's not by blood. I mean, it's not by birthright nor by the will of the flesh, meaning this. This is the second negative he uses. It's not by works. You can't earn your way into it. There's no amount of church services you can go to or money you could give or good deeds you could do to offset all of the bad you've ever done. You may not think of yourself, and most people don't. If you were to just ask people, do you think of yourself as generally good or generally bad? Most people think of themselves as generally good. People don't like to think of themselves as bad. But when we understand scripture rightly, here's what we know, that we are not generally good and that our sin, that that our, even the best that we are is still filth before God. That compared to his righteousness, we have none. And so if that's the case, then there's nothing we can do. There's no works we can perform. It doesn't matter what your Sunday school attendance was. It doesn't matter what your church giving record is going to be. It doesn't matter how many mission trips you've been on. None of that matters as it relates to salvation. Now, don't hear me say that none of that matters, period. Because it does matter. The Bible talks a lot about works and works are important. Works is, good works in obedience to Christ is evidence of the saving faith and evidence of our part of the family of God. But it is not what got you there. So often we flip these things on their heads and we make works the thing that got us there when works is just the evidence that we are if we have come to him by faith. So John says it's not by blood, it's not by the will of flesh. And then he says it's not by the will of man. Say that's a little different. So how do we, how does the will of man fit in here? Because we, we, we understand how people can think that by birth, by being in the right family, that all of a sudden I'm just a Christian because of the family I'm in or because of the works, I go to church, I'm nice, I do these things, the Bible tells me that I'm somehow a Christian. We see that, but where do we see this one? Now, this is where I think we, we see this one most often. And I recognize it's like two days after Christmas and I ought to just be nice, but I'm not going to. I think we see this one most often when people say things like, man, I just wish America would be a Christian nation again. Because here's what I think people are saying. People are saying, and, and, and I don't 
really subscribe to the idea that we ever were. I think we've, we've always had, we've always been a people defined by sin because we're just as much a part of the world as everywhere else. But by, by saying that, so often what we're saying is that if we could just impose morals back, certain morals that we had at one point in our nation and have lost, if we could just impose that back, that somehow the people around us will be Christians again, that we could just will our culture, will our society, will our nation back into God and back into God's family and back into the kingdom. And listen, we can't do that. We can't, you can't will anyone into it. You can pray for people to come to faith, but you're not going to be able to force it. And that's what will here is. Will is this force of will. You're not going to be able to push it onto someone else and clean them up from the outside. It's not by birthright. It's not by works. It's not by will. It is only of God, John says. It's only a work of God. Those who were born of the Spirit are born of the Spirit because of God. In John 3, Jesus describes that work like this. He says, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sounds, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It is only by the power of God that one can be born again. It is only by the power of God that one can be made into the family of God. And we don't know where the spirit of God is blowing. We don't know as we share the gospel with people, as I preach the gospel right now to people sitting here and gathered wherever they are watching us on the internet. I have no idea if the spirit of God is going to blow on someone's heart right now and take them from darkness into light or not. I don't know. And Jesus tells us we won't know to be like the wind. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it's going. But we know that he is the one that does the work and he alone does the work. It is not for any of us to try to earn our way in or to claim some kind of right or privilege. We are all outside. But God, to those who come to him in faith, makes them a part of the family of God by his power alone. As we move into verse 14, which really deserves a sermon all on its own, maybe a sermon series all on its own, (laughs) but I did not have time to do this. So we're going to to approach it very quickly. What we're going to see is, is the word becoming flesh and the glory and grace of this light because some are going to reject, some are going to receive, and here's what they're rejecting and receiving. The glory and grace of the one who has come from heaven and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Note this church, the incarnation, that's the big Bible word for what's being described here. The incarnation of the son of God is the greatest miracle of all time. It is greater even than the creation of the entire universe. For fully God to become fully man is the greatest act of God that will ever happen for all eternity. You see, every other world religion is one's effort, one man, one woman, one boy, one girl's effort to get to God. But Christianity stands alone. It stands apart. Christianity flips that on its head 
and says, while everyone else in the world is trying their best to get to God, God knew that that was not possible. So God became a man. Jesus Christ, the word of God, the light of the world, who was with God and was God, came and what John says here, dwelt among us. On Thursday in our Christmas Eve service, we did this really quick pass through the Old Testament. And I talked about the uh, people of God during the Exodus that, that they weren't in the promised land yet. So God instructed for them to build a, t- a tabernacle. And they would pack it up and move it every time they would move, but then they would rebuild it in their their midst. And that was the presence of God with their people. And that's exactly what Jesus is. Jesus came and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled right there in the midst of the people. That every other world religion says, do your best to get to God. And Christianity says, you can't. So God did his best to come to you. And we see the glory of God in one place, Jesus. as the only son of God, full of grace and truth, puts on skin, fully God, (laughs) with all that comes with that, and fully man, with all that comes with that, merged together in the person of Jesus Christ so that we might see God. Verses 16 and 17 read, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We'd already mentioned Moses once and I I told you so often the church thinks about Moses and the law in a, in a negative light. We think, oh, that's Old Testament, that's law, that's, that's the way things used to be. Oh, isn't Jesus so much better? Yes, Jesus is better. But we don't have to think of the law as being bad to make Jesus good. They can both be good if we recognize what the law is intended for. And here's what the law is intended for, to teach us of our great need for grace. The law came through Moses and the, Moses was good and the law was good. It came to us from God. And then Jesus kept the law in our place. That's grace upon grace. The law teaches us of our need for grace. Jesus keeps the law for us, grace upon grace. So that we might be saved. In John 6, Jesus deals with this further. As people are asking him to give them, so there's people that are rejecting him that aren't going to believe regardless. They keep asking for more and more signs. And they say, what, what, do you, what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is what the law was. The the law was bread, just like manna that they ate from heaven. And they would eat it just like we do, and we eat, and then we're what? Hungry again, right? And that's what the law is. The law, you consume the law, and you sin, and you have to make sacrifice, and, and you make right, and then you sin, and make sacrifice and make right, right? It was was just like bread. You were always hungry again, but Jesus brought bread from heaven, true bread from heaven. This is grace upon grace that, that now it's done. Now it's finished. Now the work is complete. 
that we're not hungry again because grace sustains from the moment of salvation for all eternity. We're not having to constantly go back and eat again at the table of the law because grace, the bread from heaven, has fed us completely. So what? It is only through the light of Jesus Christ that we can see God. Let me ask you a question before I explain this to illustrate it. Have you ever looked for something in a dark room and not wanted to turn the lights on so you just kind of stumble around? I used this illustration in the first service and the people that are like me all came to me in the lobby and had to show me theirs. I come up here with like my Bible and my notes and one other thing, my chapstick. <laughs> and those of you that are like me, you, you know exactly what I'm doing. This is like my security blanket. I don't go anywhere without this. I, I mean, anywhere. I've got one in my office just in case I were to somehow were to leave this or lose it on my way here. Okay, I, I, I can't really function uh, with, without it. And I put it right on my nightstand at night and uh, we'll reach for it in the middle of the night and I'll knock it off the table. And you hear that clunk and that roll, you know? Like, oh, I have no idea where that thing is, but I'm not going to be able to sleep until I find it. I mean, just, I'm not, I'm gonna have to find this. But I'm in the room with my wife and she's asleep and so I don't wanna wake her up, so what do I do? I stumble around in the darkness trying to find this little rolling tube that's on the floor. When the simplest solution would be what? Just turn the light on. Because if I turned the light on, I would find it in a matter of seconds, right? But I don't want to turn the light on for good reason, but this is an illustration, right? I don't want to turn the light on, so I don't. I just stumble in the darkness. We've all stumbled around in the darkness looking for something like that before. When the easiest thing to do would just be turn the light on. Stop stumbling around. Stop feeling around for your way. Stop trying to figure it out and turn the light on. This is what so many people are doing in our world today. They're still trying to make their way, stumbling and stammering in the darkness, not recognizing that Jesus is the light of the world and it is only through him, the true light that we can see God. I saved the last verse of the prologue of John for our application. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, we've just mentioned Moses, and so John knows what he's doing here, right? And, and they would say, well, hey, Moses saw God. Moses was able in the story of Exodus to see the back of God. But he was not ever to see the fullness of God. And that's what John says. No one's ever seen the, the fullness of God. And this is worded a little funky in English. Um, and so here's what's happening. This first part's talking about the Father. No one has ever seen God. That's the Father. And then it says, the only God. And you left to wonder, was well, that talking about the Father or that's talking about something else? The only God literally means the unique one. This is talking about Jesus. He's returned now to his subject, the word, the light. That Jesus, who he, John has already established is God, he is who is described here in this second phrase. So no one has ever seen God, but, and that word may help there, but the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, so he clarifies, making sure we understand who he's talking about. He made him known. Jesus is the only God, the unique one who has made the Father known to us. It is only through Jesus Christ that we can see God. There, there is no birthright. There is no work. There is no will of man. There is no mountain that you can climb to get to God. 
But God came to us in Jesus Christ and he is now the light of the world. And if you will believe, he will make you a child of God because you will then be a part of his family. Through Christ alone, we have that. So your invitation today is this, stop stumbling in the darkness. Stop stumbling around in the darkness and trying to do it on your own. You can't do it on your own, but Jesus has come to give you light because he, my friend, is the light of the world. For those that are in the light, don't hide the light. Don't reserve the light just for people that you like. Don't reserve the light just for people that you think may receive the light. Proclaim the light. Let's be a people who turn the light on for as many as we can, recognizing this. Yes, there will be some who reject it, but there will also be those who for the first time can finally see and will come to God through faith in Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the light that we find in Jesus Christ with men and women and boys and girls today in this room and watching with us in their homes, would they find that light? But they find you because Jesus has lit the way. Help them as they come out of darkness and in the light. Would your spirit move in the way that only you can? Would you help us too, God, those who are in the light, to not be ashamed of the light, to not hide the light, but to be those who proclaim it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.